from one day again, because the veterans are already up and moving. Um, at this time, it's like the bike is still going to be used to the classes, so then again, they're going to go up here. Um, one thing that I was um, reminded of by others is that you can't assume everyone knows where we're sending these children or where they're going. So if you are new, trust me, there's doors that go there, and there's adults past the doors that are going to have them in their appropriate classroom. And if you are youth group age, it's a sixth grader up. If you go through the back door, past the Woody and her past the Woody, wow. Past the Bree and her team are back there. Oh, man, he must be doing something wrong. He's on my mind. Y'all pray for him with me right now. Um, this morning, we are um, going to be continuing our, our sermon series, Good News for the Lost. And, and the focus is on um, loving our enemies, which is interesting because I think God has a sense of humor because to prepare me for this week, he decided to let the, the women in my family, if you need to know who has real authority in my house, agree to dog sit. Right? Um, and I, I wouldn't be fair to call this dog an enemy, just an enemy of my progress. Right? Like, it's the third daughter I get at once. It is the child that feels the need. Yeah, it's okay. I'm fine with it. Um, it's the child that just doesn't seem to, like, be hungry all the time and is needing stuff. Like, yesterday I was sitting there looking at the poor thing, and I was just like, it's raining. And she's like, I got to go outside. I'm like, do you have to go outside? Um, and I just find it interesting that all these women in my life decided, yes, we want a dog sit. Yet it was me and only one of them that was out in the rain with the dog. Nothing says loving your enemies and picking up after a dog in the cold rain. I'm just telling you. If you don't believe I can love my enemies, now you know. Right? Uh, but in all seriousness, um, it was um, in thinking about love for enemies, I, I've been thinking a lot about my grandfather this week. If you, if you follow the blog, you, you saw I shared a little bit there. Uh, my grandfather, my mom's mom, uh, his name was Momo Molokunda Sambala. And, and what was interesting about his life is that as I thought about loving our enemies, I thought about how for a lot of us, Right? Um, the idea of, of enemies is, is, is not, you know, like most of us, I hope, don't walk around saying, you're my enemy, you're my enemy, you're my enemy, right? Um, but I also think we can tend to over-spiritualize it, right? Like, scripture is clear, right? In Romans 6, for example, verse 12, you know that verse. Like, I grew up wrestling, so every wrestling tournament I went to, right? I didn't go to Christian school in Soma Sala, but every tournament I went to, there was at least 10 people wearing shirts that said, but we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And I was like, they think they're really smart, except we are actually wrestling flesh and blood that day. You know, it was like the irony of them wearing that shirt, like, was lost on all of them, right? And everyone thought it was a novel idea. And this is from, like, 9 to 21. Every single tournament where we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And the ref will go to whistle, and that's what we do. We wrestle against flesh and blood, right? That's why I think the NIV changed it, right? So now the NIV says, for our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And it's important for us to realize that when we enter into this family of faith, right, the true struggle we have is spiritual, not just physical. That even the physical manifestation of enemies or the things done to us or the things done by us might be really spiritual powers that are working within us, right? Whether it's in a system, right? C.S. Lewis does a really good job in screw tape letters of at least introducing the West to this idea that, like, hey, we might also have these territorial beings and powers, right, that, that might be over you, right? And that's weird for us. Like, I grew up uh, in Liberia and then in Sierra Leone and then uh, Ivory Coast. Most of West Africa, if you say this river might have a spirit over it, they're not going to disagree with you, right? If you say that in Africa, they might say, like, well, you know, we also got PPI on, on Third Street, right? 
And then, you know, you might get in here just researching all the weird things that happen by the river, and then you might change your mind, right? I remember one year I was in a class and they said, yeah, rivers are weird. Like, like traditionally, the ancients believe, like, that's where spirit dwells. I was like, oh, that's wild. We're not in Africa anymore. And I came out when I was in seminary last spring. We had stories about people driving into the river. And I left two blocks in the river, too. People driving into the river people being found in the river, and a car being in the river still, right? And I was like, well, maybe this is going to something, you know? But a lot of times when we think about enemies, right, we need to know that it is the spiritual world we're in. But I think the challenge of Jesus, right, is to remind us that you can't over-spiritualize enemies, that there's going to be people in your life, right, who might hold that question. And so Jesus' question and a kind of uh, uh, push for us here is, what do we do with that? Right? And I think for those of us, it, it, it would behoove us, that's a good church word, right? It behoove us to remember, right, when, 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 when Jesus, not only did Jesus have enemies, but if we do not have enemies, Jesus has warnings for that, right? He's like, beware when they only keep mentioning that. Yeah, right? So Jesus is not saying, go out there and make everyone mad, which I'm convinced some Western Christians think that's what it means to be a Christian, right? Like, if I'm not angering the world, I'm not a good Christian today. Like, I, I feel like people literally wake up and like, let me get on Facebook. Let's go, right? Like, I, I, it might just be me, I'm biased, I know, but I feel like I can open up my phone right now and there's at least one Christian I know who made it their duty instead of praising God, but to maybe praise God by angering someone today, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about, right? But he does want us to acknowledge that in this world, we might have people who come against us. And the question here isn't, do you have an enemy? You do. The question is, what do you do with that enemy? And I thought of my grandpa because I tend to be on the side of, well, no, I don't have enemies. Everyone likes me. I like everyone. It's good, right? But I thought of my grandfather's life. I realized how lazy this enemy stuff was. I guess in the Bible, my, my grandpa was a Bai Muslim chief. If you break that down, the Bai were an ethnic minority in Liberia that, that is, even to this day, they've grown since I left in 1989. But now they're about 140,000, right? So that's about two to three times faster, right? That's the entire population of, of Bai people. What's interesting about that number being so small is that Liberia as a population is 5 million, right? So they're very small within this 5 million. And what makes that tricky is that the buyers spread over countries, mostly Liberia and Sierra Leone, which again, when the West came in and said, now we have countries, they set up arbitrary borders, you know? So Baruch and I were brothers, and we grew up in the same house, and we moved an hour away, he's now a new country, right? And, and, and so the buyers are not only small in number, they've been split in virtually two, three ways between the West African countries. Also critical for this is that the Vi owned the land that became our capital city of Monrovia, right? So depending on who you talk to, they either gifted the land to the formerly enslaved that landed, or they were forced to do it by the U.S. government. It depends who you want to talk to, right? It's just, so you have to understand, like, so my grandfather comes from this tradition, proud people who never left Africa, right? Whose family is split in three, four ways, right? And who are now forced in these new countries and to fight loyalty to Liberia when I have a brother in Sierra Leone and a brother in Ivy Coast. That's before you get to the cousins. And you know, I my family, we got cousins, right? He was also Muslim, which makes him a religious minority. A lot of times we talk about Muslim Christian religion, we talk about, you know, Muslim countries and the Christians minorities there, right? We don't always talk about the other way around. But the privileges we have 
as Christians to other religious minorities, right? It, it, it's one of the things that Christianity is easy for us to side with is with those who are oppressed. The thing that's hard for us is when we're the oppressor. And the sad truth of our history is that at least once, that's the joke, we've been the oppressor. And in my country, you know, my name is Kenny Johnson, I'm very African, right? So uh, there's a huge part of my family that's formerly enslaved Africans, right? So we were the oppressor. Nobody watching at home, like, hi guys. We were the oppressor. And, and so it's hard for us to think of us and others like, we're liberated from America, we're in this new country, we gave you liberty, right? But it's hard for us to realize that the ethnic minorities among us were denied certain rights, right? So you have them as bi, you have them as Muslim, but then you also have them as a state. What put them in the smallest of political minorities? One of the things that my ancestors did when they set up the country is we had one political party. Doesn't matter what you think, you're in the political party. Like, you like, why well, dissent? You do not dissent. Like, what is dissent? Does not exist, right? There's one political party. And, and, and that's how we held power. So you had my grandfather, whose family ruled his land, not for decades, not, not for a hundred years, but for centuries, right? who's now resolved to being a farmer because that's all they allow him to do. So when I think about his life, and I think about loving enemies, I'm almost amazed that someone who was in the, the, the numerical minority, the political minority, the power minority, the indigenous minority, right, was someone who deeply loved. Because everyone I've ever met who tells me my grandfather, tell you so about how he's generous. I kind of wish he was still alive because the, the, the thing is, when, when you just got married, if you went to him and said, hey, we're just starting out, he would buy you a house. And I'm just like, 1987, why did you have to die? You could have just waited 20 years, right? He made it to like 95. He could have done 115. I'm serious. Like, you could have just around 20 years, right? But that's what he was known to do. And so I'm now 40 years old in America, and I'm still hearing stories of his generosity. Because he really believed if I'm blessed, I'm supposed to be a blessing. And so the thesis for me was that my grandfather, who was a Muslim, looked more like Jesus than my family, who were Christian. Hi, guys. I'm going to have a lot of emails. You know I get emails from the text. This one's all family today. It's going to be awesome. Hi, Mom. It's going to be great, right? But, but, but like, he not only so a lot of people say, well, Muslims are see Jesus as a prophet. But I think the thing about my grandfather that's amazing is that he looked more like Jesus because he had this radical kindness, right? He was someone who was like, you know what? If they're going to take away all my power, whatever power they give me, I'm going to use that to help other people. And, and so you had this, this Muslim chief who was able to exist in the city that was once his family. And, and when they stripped away everything, he realized they cannot strip him away of his love. And what a witness and legacy for all of us who are in his life, right? Like, well, he was like, he loves to serve people. I'm like, I don't even know if I have a choice, right? Like, he's just like, you know, and he's like, this is what we do. This is what God to do, right? But I love that he looks like Jesus. And he writes for this. He says that there's a kingdom of Jesus that, that the kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. Think about the best thing you can do for the worst person. And then go ahead and do it. Think of what you really like someone to do for you and then do it for them. Think of people whom you're tempted to be nasty and lavish generosity on them instead. 
These instructions have fresh, spring-like qualities. They're all about new life bursting out energetically, like flowers growing through the country and startling everyone with their color and vigor. That's what we're meant to look like. We may have enemies, but do we look like Jesus? And I think one of the challenges of my life is, am I willing to live a life not only modeled by Muslim grandfathers, but actually look like Jesus? That's the point. That's the call. That's what Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 6. Jerry Bible, share with me now. The Luke 6, we'll be looking at our text this morning, starting at verse 27. Um, so I'll be reading Luke 6, 27 to 36. Um, we'll have it up front so you can follow there as well. Verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others if you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that as well. And if you lend to those for whom you accept repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. Why? Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful. Another translation might say, be compassionate. Last week, Jesus the same word and says, look, be perfect. As your Father is merciful, compassionate, and perfect. Amen? Let's pray to God. Father God, we thank you so much that in this teaching, our Lord Jesus reminds us that even love, love of enemies, just might change the world. But not only will it change the world, Lord, we thank you that it changes us, that it transforms us from sinners into not just people who are redeemed, people who are living like the redeemed. It transforms us into not only the image of Jesus, but to actually be Jesus to our world. Lord, we thank you that it transforms us because your love flows in us, but out of us to empower the world, to give them compassion, to give them grace, to give them mercy, even to give them healing. Lord, may we be a people who are committed to being radically generous, who are committed to be known by our kindness, who are committed to be servants who love us. Yes, Lord, even our enemies too. In the holy and precious name, amen. So what I love about this passage is that Luke in his scaling or in his setup of, of the entire book puts it right after the Beatitudes, right? So he's going to start off and say, hey, if you belong to Jesus, this is what you ought to look like. This is what we look like that belong to Jesus. Remember that Luke is very literal, right? Luke is just writing, so Matthew is a blessing of the foreign spirit. And Luke will act theological at that. And Luke is like, no, no, cut that in half. I want you to remember the poor. Because there's something to learn from the poor. I want you to remember the people among you who don't know where any of their next meals are coming from. I want you to remember the people who are completely dependent on someone else just to eat. I want you to remember the people who have nothing. Because only when you have that, not just in your spirit, but in your life, can you truly come to Christ. We have to be poor like that. Where our only reliance is not on ourselves, not on our ability to pick ourselves up, not in our our gifts, our skills, our abilities, or how great we are. When we get to the point of 
such abject poverty that all we need is God and all we have is God. That's what it means to bless it on the poor. Do we have a hunger that only Jesus can see? Do we weep when we sin? Do we live for Christ in a way that it angers not just the spiritual world, but even those among us? That's what it means. So he sets it up and says, if you belong to Jesus, this is what you ought to look like. Because if you don't, don't look like Jesus. I love this in the Gospels, right? They don't mince words. A lot of times you're like, I'm trying to follow Jesus, right? Then you read the Gospels, like, you either belong to God or you belong to the devil. They say, well, then you stop trying. Then <laughs> you just follow Jesus. You know, because like, the Gospel writers don't seem to think they're trying, right? You're either following Jesus or you're not. You're either looking like Jesus or you're not. And I think that in between that we like to do, they just don't do it. And you see this within the text of the passage, right? You do this and you look like sons of the most high. Children of the Most High. And what's the opposite of that? If you don't do it, and you don't look like children of the Most High, you don't look like you belong to God. The gospel writers do not miss words here. So, so I love that even when they, they talk about the woes, right? They talk about how this is a compassionate regret. Because they're not saying, woe to you, cursing upon you. They're saying, listen, if you're still seeking the things of this world to fill you, you will be let down. If you're still seeking the, 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 the experiences or the gifts or the blessings so to speak of this world, whether it's money, whether it's, it's comfort, whether it's, you know, freedom, that's what we love in America. We love freedom. We love liberty. We just don't want everyone to have it. Right? We love it, but not for you. That's American History 101 if you talk to me later. All right. The thing here, though, is even in light of these woes, Luke presented in a way that, like, I want you all to see that if you're dependent on the world to fill you, it won't happen. If you're dependent on the world to give you morality, it won't happen. If you're dependent on the world to lead you, it will not happen because it will not lead you to God. And, and, and then also within the context, if you go further back in the story, you'll see how Luke has what? Showcased Jesus' generosity. And his birth is not just the fulfillment of prophecies, right? But his birth actually blesses people. Think about how many different people we meet in the Luke story that are blessed just by Jesus being a baby showing up. If you go in the Gospels, you got angels, you got shepherds, you got wise men from the east, right? You got his parents, Mary and Joseph, you got Elizabeth and Zechariah, you got Anna and Simeon. The whole story is Jesus shows up and the world is blessed. That's the kind of generosity of who God is. We tend to think that we know Jesus coming is the beginning of the gospel story, but he's coming for us. No, no, he's coming for the world. And Luke compiles all these people together and says, Jesus showing up is God's generosity. And think about all the stories we've done so far, right? He's showing how in Jesus' life, the crowds might be intrigued, but Jesus seems to be not just feeling many. Not just calling few, but making an impact that's going to last forever. So Luke is saying that generosity of God is seen in the life of Jesus. This is why Jesus can be in a crowd, but if you bring someone at his feet, he'll be open. This is why Jesus can be in a teaching session, but if you bring someone with a withered hand, he'll heal them too. This is why Jesus can be preaching and people can touch him, and the power that's in him is also going out of him to heal others, right? Jesus is not only for the masses, he's for the individual. And so Luke is showing generosity upon generosity upon generosity. That's who God is. And I think we do a good job understanding that. The challenge for us is that's who we're supposed to be. And so he puts that now in light of what it means to love your enemies. 
because Jesus is God of even our enemies. And I love that he starts off this section with an invitation. Right? After he gives you the blessing and the woes and what it means to look like in the kingdom, he starts off this section with, but to you who are listening, right? And I get that because when you're being blessed, it's easy to listen. When someone says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, it's easy to tune them out. Right? I think that's what Luke is doing. It's like, we gave you a lot of love, but I want y'all to know who's, who's still listening, right? But to you who are listening, there's an invitation here that for you who are reliant on God. So we're not just saying you who believe in God. We're not just saying you who trust God. You who have a faith in God, right? But for those of you who are reliant on God, who look like people of the kingdom, here is your invitation. I need you to love as God loves. One thing that struck me about this passage is Luke, he is even in compiling the words of Jesus here. There's nowhere in this passage that Jesus commands you have fuzzy feelings for your enemies. There's nowhere in the practice that says, I don't that I can love my enemy, I don't like them. And I think the practice that I don't care if you don't like them. I think there's other practices that deal with what we think about our enemies. Matthew does a good job in the Sermon on the Mount, so like, God cares even what you think about them. But for Luke, it's all about action. Luke is saying, like, listen, it don't matter if you don't like them. It don't matter if you don't care for them. It don't matter what you think about them. You are moved to act like Jesus. That's what you're called to do. You're not called to like them right now. I just want you to act like Jesus. And something wild happens when we start praying for people we don't like. When we start serving people we don't like. When we start loving people we don't like. Guess what happens? We start to like them. And so Luke is focused on the actions here, right? So for him, it's, I want you to love God's love. And what's interesting is you know in the ancient Greek there's a lot of different words for love. And so if you were wondering, like, well, maybe you just means love, like, like, I love you, you're my brother. No. Luke uses agape here. And that's significant. Because when Jesus is saying love your enemies, he's not just saying feel good about them. Try your best, you know? Try and see if you're good today, then we'll come back tomorrow. No, he's saying love as I love you. Bring that love and give it to your enemies, too. That's a challenge. Because again, I don't, I don't like you to do some of these things. But now Jesus rephrases everything and says, no, no, no. Agape love your enemies. The love I have for you, that sacrificial love. That love that puts you first. That love that's willing to die for you. That love that's willing to, to uplift you and put you first always. I want you to bring that kind of love to your enemies. Jesus is expanding the playing field here. Because in the Old Testament, you're commanded to what? Love your neighbors. It commands to what? Love those who are in proximity to you. Love those who you identify as, as neighbors or close to you. And yet Jesus says, okay, that's cool. Now you go to the foundation, let's go to the second floor and the third floor and put a roof on it. And the roof on it is I want you to love everybody, including your enemies too. Not just the love that you feel, but the love that comes from God. That agape love, that's who you are to give your enemies. And then you use the word culture. Colossus, right? Wait, maybe I'll tell you. I'm always telling you that I write sermons, right? I don't know if you ever had Colossus. It's delicious. If you don't know what it is, eat one. Delicious, right? But Colossus is the word that it literally means, right, not to do good to those who hate you, but it means be so much good that you're blameless before God, essentially. Right? And so this is Jesus now. Luke's not with Luke as well as focus on actions, 
deep in the focus of our actions and your heart always. So Luke is saying, like, yo, listen, just do it and then you'll figure it out later. But Jesus, through the words, you break it down in the Greek and say, yeah, when you do good to people, I want you to do it in a way that you're doing So that means you don't do it with an attitude or that attitude. <laughs> it means you don't do it in spite of them, right? You ever have someone serve you in spite of you? Right? Like, it's just like, oh, here you go. No one feels good about that. Right? Like, no one feels good about that. Like, oh, thank you for fighting me as you get. You know what I mean? It does not work. It's not okay, right? So what Luke is saying, or what Jesus is saying here, is to lock your haters in the sense of not to eat them, but do so much good that it comes from a blameless heart, that it comes from a blameless spirit, that they are blessed by your goodness. Because here's the thing, we can do good without actually blessing the people. Because if our heart isn't good, <laughs> Jesus said later in Luke, right? The heart is, the mouthpiece what the heart is full of. If our heart isn't good, people will know that, right? There's a reason you know this. I always give the example of, like, you know, like me as an African American man. If I'm walking down the street and you say, hey, boy, right? Depending on who you are, I will receive that differently. You know, if you're one of my uncles or my mom's generation, I get it, right? If you grew up with me in Southwest Philly, I also get it. If you just happen to be a white male from 96 South Carolina, I might have some feelings, right? Like the, the heart speaks with the mouth is full of. And just like we can tell people's heart when they speak and interact with us, yes, we can tell too. Jesus. So how we love or how we're good, Jesus cares about. And then he says, let's go to Christ. I love that this is collapsing. Now, reaction. And the reason is now reaction is you're getting the, the instructions before it happens. Okay? Because I thought you were like, well, I'm in this situation, I don't know what to think, right? But he was like, cool. I'm going to tell you what to do before you get to that situation. It's proactive in that when they curse you, when they speak down to you, I want you to actually bless them. And then I think maybe the most challenging part of this is this idea, right? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, I don't think here, right, that the Jesus is saying, uh, uh, if you are, are, are hurt, right? Like, you should ignore and negate the crime that's caused. I think it's important to not negate harm that's caused. I also think it's important to not ignore the trauma that comes from harm caused. Right? I mean, we have to hold all those things. But I think what Jesus is saying is that when you belong to me, when you look like me, even to those who cause you harm, you're meant to be my priest. So what is the job of the priest? To literally be a bridge between them and God. And I think that's why he calls us to pray. Because in the prayer, you're speaking the betterment of God. In the prayer, you're, you're taking them out of your hands and putting them in God's hands. We are called to intercede even for serial sinners because Jesus desires us to be our priest. Now, how do we do it with the trauma that we hold on to, with the harm that's so affecting us? We do it by relying on God and asking that Holy Spirit to not to heal us, right? We do it by putting the work in. And for some of us, that might need therapy. For some of us, that therapy and spiritual direction. For some of us, that therapy, spiritual direction, and, and daily prayer, right? There's a lot of stuff you have to do. But at the end of the day, what Jesus is calling you here is to intercede on behalf of 
That's why this is so simple, but so hard. Because we have a tendency to say we want retribution, we want justice, we want things to be made right. And that's why I think the next passage actually addresses that, right? He just says, turn the other cheek. When they actually slap you, turn the other cheek. Now, I think this is a figurative thing, right? Like, like, I don't think Jesus is saying, like, go around and let people slap you. I know some versions of Christianity thought that's what it meant, right? But like, it's just like, he's not really being literal here. If you slap me, let me turn the other one. Then you slap me down, I'm good. That's not what he's saying, right? But like, he's saying that when they deeply insult you in that culture, slapping with the right hand, and in a lot of, you know, now Western culture, that's so true. Like, slapping with the right hand is a scene that's this ultimate insult. In the Old Testament, I feel like God would say vengeance is mine. In this verse, I think Jesus is saying, your job is to love them. Right? Leave the justice to me. Leave the transformation to me. Leave the making it right to me. Your job is to love them. So when they insult you, our natural tendency is to what? Ask out and respond. I grew up in Southwest Philly. You looked at me just when you were ready to fight. Right? And they're not stuck on my fingers. <laughs> you know, and they're like, they were fighting three days in a row, right? We have a tendency within our culture, all of us within our culture, to think that the best thing we can do is to fight. And it's hard. Because I don't think Jesus is calling us, right, to just lay down and take abuse. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying if your natural uh, tendency is to insult God, you're not looking at the need to be if your natural tendency is to cause harm because you've been harmed, you're not looking at me when you do that. I know you're hurting. I know you're in pain. I know it's not easy, but I'm still calling you to look like me because when you look like me in the pain, in the harm, in the hurting, the world will see and glorify the Father in heaven. Because we're just acting like the world is. There's nothing special about us. Because listen, if they take your cloak, if they take your jacket, give them the script too. What's interesting about that is that the old law was pretty clear. No matter what they stole from you, no matter what they do to you, the dignity of human life means that you would at least, you might say they owe me if I'm going to take the outer garment, but you have to at least leave the understood, right? And Jesus is saying, that's their version of justice. That's how they take care of you. I want you to know I will always take care of you, and I don't even want you worried about that understood. If they want to give them both, and trust me to provide so Jesus is again, he's taking this Old Testament teaching and building upon it. He's saying, listen, the Old Testament says, I'll protect you by leaving that undergarment. I'm saying, I'll protect you. Trust me, give them that too. It's not just about what happens to us, and it's not just about how we react. Are we reacting in a way that's honoring God? And then there's something very interesting. Now, I always thought this was random, right? Give to everyone who asks you. If anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. I just been reading this week, trying to unpack that. And what's interesting is, is Jesus is, is talking about something that the, the people were doing <laughs> that was in, in line with the law, kind of, right? I don't know about you, but sometimes we learn the rules and we learn how far we can skirt around the rules, right? How close we can get to the mark. And maybe that's just me, right? Like I remember one time my mom was like, don't eat the cookie. Like, what's the John the day by pickle by? I was like, no, what are we doing? <laughs> you know, it didn't go well for me. But I'm just saying, some of us have that personality type, right? So what they were doing 
is that every seven years in, in certain Jewish uh, towns who would follow the Old Testament law, there would be a certain amount of years that you'd have to forgive all the debt. So Jesus isn't saying, like, hey, you're getting scammed keeping people, right? So Jesus noticed within the culture that there are a lot of people who were poor. They needed your help financially to help buy the seeds so they can have a crop to pay you back. And you would literally look at the town and be like, ooh, six months till the new year. I don't think I'm going to do that. And within the law, they would justify it by saying, well, I mean, you know, like, we're not supposed to charge interest. So if we can't at least make our money back, this is not a good investment. And so they would deny people. And so that's why this passage time and time again says that if you get to someone who you know will pay you back, how is that special? Like, how is it special? But if you're willing to meet your brother and sister who's in need, who may not pay you back, and you're still willing to, to bless them, not as an investment for, for their living even, or, or an investment in your finances, but an investment in them being blessed by God through you, if you're willing to do that, you look like when they come to you and they're poor and needy and they ask, your job is to give it all and not expect anything for return. And that's challenging. Because there's a lot of times when we do something for you, but we may not say it, but we know it. And we keep a count of all the times I've been there for you. And there's one time I need you to be there. Maybe you said that before, maybe it's just me. Huh? He doesn't want to keep his health. You're blessed to be a blessing. You're great to be great. To love, to love. Like that's the economy of Jesus' kingdom. Like, Jesus doesn't want to do math. It's like, okay, if I bless you in this way, this is how I'll see my food, and then that'll be good. No. If you can bless, bless. If you can love, love. If you can give, give. That's the call he's making gifts. Give it all. Don't expect the poor to even return. Don't expect those who are lacking. Your job is to bless. I've given you these resources, not so you can pad your bank account, not so you can pad your ego, not so you can feel good about yourself and say, I'm nice and comfortable. I don't have to worry. No, I've given you all these things so that you can be a blessing. That's the message he's saying here. You are called to be a blessing, so please go out and bless. I trust you're a good business person. I trust you to balance your book. But do you look like me? And then he ends this passage with a positive answer, right? Do to others as you would have them do to you. I love them positive. Right? They're just like, don't do the people what you want them to do to you. That's not even proactive, right? It's like that's mostly in your head, right? It's like, well, they don't do that. we cool, right? But Jesus says, no, how you want to be treated is how you should live. And in other places in the gospel, he'll say even more clear, like in Matthew's version, where he won't just say, like, do the others as you would have them do to you. He'll say, love them the way I have loved you, right? Like, do to them the way God has done you. And so this radical repositioning is, if they insult you, turn the other seat and rely on me. If they want one garment, give them both. If they ask for anything, give it to them because they're in need and you can provide help. Two wants to others, what you would have them do to you. That's repositioning. That's changing how we think, changing where we sit, right? And then he wants to finish it by reforming us. 
And then the idea is that if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? And that's very much, you know, like business, right? We're talking about loaning and, and getting money back. So credit makes sense. You know the word for Greek is actually terse? What terse means? Great. And we usually use that word towards what? Amazing grace. Like God's grace for us. And I think that, at least for me, maybe it's because I, I don't want to ever take another accountant class in my life, right? Like, I'm just being honest. Vulnerability is good for all of us. But maybe, just maybe, if we say, you know, if I do good, what credit is that to me? If you're an accountant, maybe that's just yes, 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 I get it. But for me, going back to the Greek and saying, there is no grace for loving those who love you. There is no grace for forgiving to those who can pay you back. It's a little bit different. We're talking about the grace that God gives. The grace that we hold on to, the character that comes from Christ. It is not available to us if we only love those who love us. It is not available to us if we only do good for those who can do good to us. It's not because it's a hard word. It's Jesus wants you to look like Jesus. If God is generous, you ought to be generous too. If God is loving, you ought to love too. If God is compassionate, you ought to be compassionate too. Because loving your enemies in this way is how you show your children of the most high. Loving your enemies in this way is how you show you can be merciful, compassionate, and perfect if God is perfect. And I was just saying, I struggled with that word. I was just like, I don't really think God is perfect to be perfect, right? I had a friend who was from a different tradition, like, well, yes, that's what it means. The Greek is saying, be merciful, be compassionate, be loving. And I love that God's definition of perfect within that Greek word is merciful, compassion, and loving, and not always getting it right. There's a stress that comes to having to always get it right. There's a freedom that comes with loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, loving your brother, loving your sister. God wants us to be free, and who Jesus has been free has been free indeed. We are called to love. Amen? So we think about good news for our enemies, and what it means to love our enemies. I think the first thing I want us to hold on to as we're here to leave here is that we are meant to be the good news for our enemies. That's why he's calling you to love those enemies, because you might be the only one who can love the way Jesus loves them. You might be the entry point to introduce them to Jesus. So yes, even those who find us, even those who don't love us, even those who hate us, even those who insult us, even those who hurt us, we might be the priest and the bridge to bring them or at least show them what God's love looks like. We are meant to be good news for our enemies. We're not meant to pile it on. We're meant to set them free for it. I love that line from Dr. King, right? And he talks about how the, 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 the people who are doing the abuse are just as much in pain as the people who are being abused. That's challenging because we want them to be made right. And justice and righteousness to come down. But that's God's job. Our job is to love in a way that liberates them and maybe calls them to God. We're meant to be the news for our enemies. We're called to do good for our enemies. The blameless thing. The good that comes from the heart of God. The good is not just what I feel or what I think I should do, but the good that actually puts them first. And I love that in all of this, we have Christ as our example. How many times, even in these first six chapters of Luke, have we read Jesus being insulted? Have we heard him call him the Have we seen him threatened? It's like, we're only six chapters in. You know, like, 
He's been assaulted and called a name. They, they, they try to kill him. They even verbalize, oh, we need to kill him. You know, like, it's like it's happening right in front of him. They go like, oh, I need to like the sinners. He's the only one of them, right? Like, he hangs out with sinners, right? So many time and time again in Jesus' life, he's going to experience all these things. I think a lot of times we say, well, Jesus is our example. We just think, oh, it's ideal, you know? And you can go through the story in the life of Jesus and see all these things he's talking about. He's faith and he's so, so, so love. So whatever you think, I pray that God gives you the strength to not just know Jesus as your example, but to actually follow Jesus in this. And you have help. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, Amen. You have a body. You know, we took kids into the body this morning, right? You have a body of Christians. What I love about the body of Christ is it's not just our church. It's not just the brethren and sisters. It's not even just Christians in 2023. The body of every Christian that's ever existed, every Christian that will exist. That's all of us together. You have the support on your side. So the prayer for all of us is that may we reflect on God. And the best way to do that is to be known by our love. Amen? Uh, let's stand now. I'd like to invite up Pastor Hannah and the worship team. We're going to close um, singing, Let Us Be Known by Our Love. And as we sing this song, that we hold on to this simple idea of, of what it means to actually reflect Jesus. Not just to those who love us, but especially to those who can't love us. Let's sing this thing together. Uh, pastors are also in the room. We, we're going to be up here. We'd love to pray for you for anything you've got going on or anyone who's on your heart or anything in response to the service. Every holy 
make us more like Jesus. Church that's all around us, inspire us all to look more like Jesus. Father God, thank you for loving us, and thank you for this call to be merciful, to be compassionate, to be perfectly loving, as your merciful, compassionate, and perfectly loving too. In your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen? God bless you all.